You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Morning, everyone. So for those of you who don't know me, hello. My name is Sam. Very warm welcome here this morning. Um, I speak said we're in the middle of a sermon series looking at four attributes of who God is. And this morning, I have the privilege of talking about God is eternal. Uh, often when Christians preach, then they come up with something that's incredibly controversial if you're not a Christian. Um, so we talk about things like, you know, God's justice and God's mercy and wh- whatever we talk about tends to be controversial to uh, people who are not Christian. When it comes to talking about God is eternal, that's not the case. Every Christian agrees God is eternal. Everyone who believes in some world religion that isn't Christianity believes that God must be eternal. And even atheists say that conceptually speaking, if there did exist a God, he must be eternal because Otherwise, he would have a beginning, and that wouldn't make any sense. Um, the Bible very clearly says it in Psalm, Psalm 90, verse 2. It says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Revelation 1, verse 8, then God says, I am the beginning and the end, the one who was and who is and who is to come. And in Isaiah 57, chapter, uh, verse 15, uh, then we have this lovely little phrase that says that God inhabits eternity. So it's like any point in time that you look at, past, present, or future, God will be there because he is eternal. But there is a question mark over what eternal actually means. Does eternal mean that God is incredibly old and will continue getting old but will never die? Or does it mean that he actually exists somehow outside of time and that time is something that he doesn't experience because he's eternal in that way? Which is a very interesting question to ask because our language is limited in that we can only ever talk about something that exists within time. We only ever talk in the past, present, or future tense. We don't have a way of speaking about something that exists outside of time. So it's almost as if I'm here this morning, somebody born blind trying to explain colors to other blind people. Just think about that. It's pretty difficult. The way that we can understand God's eternality is to look, and that is a word I checked Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the opening verse in the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So at the beginning of all things, when time itself started, God was there already active and creating. Now you could say, well, it it could mean in the beginning of space, but the time already existed. But in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9, then it says that God existed before time began. So actually, he existed before time. How long before? One second? 10 million years? Well, that question doesn't make any sense because there was no time. So he existed before time, but we're not able to understand how. This is so difficult for us to understand. My mind has been melting preparing for this, I promise you. Think about the way that we perceive reality. We perceive it through five senses. Sight, sound, touch, taste, smell, right? They They only work if you are in a time-bound environment. So if you think about sound, the reason that you're able to hear what I'm saying now is because I'm creating vibrations in the air which are sending sound waves towards you and they they make your eardrums vibrate and at different frequencies and at different intensities and then that changes and as the tone of my voice changes then those frequencies change. So you're able to tell how high I'm speaking depending on how many vibrations per second my voice is creating. But without time, you don't have a second. So without time, there's no sound. 
sight is exactly the same. The way that we see things is that light leaves a source, bounces off uh, something purple, reflects back into my eyes, and therefore I'm able to perceive it as purple. But if you don't have any time, then there's no difference from it leaving there to getting there. Light travels extremely fast, so we can't tell, except it still travels. So it's there one moment, and it's there the next moment, and here the next. Without time, it can't travel. It's not moving. So without time, I can't see either. Is your mind hurting? Yep. So without time, we're unable to perceive reality. So God exists in a state where we don't even have a frame of reference within which to put him. This ought to increase our awe of God and make us want to worship because we can't even understand. When we pick one simple element of God that nobody even argues about, when we start to say, okay, what does it mean? Our minds just don't have a way of processing it. God is so much greater than we can ever possibly imagine. And that's wonderful. And God reveals himself in a particular way, which helps us to understand this a little bit more personally, when he reveals his name in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. He says, I am that I am. He's the self-existent one, the one that doesn't need a creator in order to come into being. He simply is. I am. He says, tell them that I am is sending you. And Jesus uses this title, I am, in John chapter 8, verse 58, to reveal something about the way that he exists in time. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Now that's grammatically incorrect, if you're time-bound. He's obviously making a claim to be God, except he would have been making the same claim if he'd said, before Abraham was, I was. Because nobody else is that old. But he specifically chose to use I am and make it grammatically incorrect so that it would make us think. He said, before Abraham was, I am. Now, if God exists outside of time, then it changes the way that he perceives time and reality. Think about the way that we experience existence. We experience now, we have memories of the past, and we can somehow predict the future. We are able to predict generally how things are going. If I drop a ball, it's going to drop because I can predict that's going to happen. But the only thing that we can predict perfectly is now. I said predict, I mean that's the wrong word, except the only thing we can perceive properly is right now. So if I asked you what pattern is on the walls or the floor, what color shirt am I wearing, or what's the tone of my voice, what words am I using, you're able to do that right now. But even if I were to ask you at lunch what words was I using, it would be difficult for you to remember the exact words. You might be able to remember the general ideas. You might even be able to remember the position that you were thinking in or the thoughts that were running through your mind as I'm saying it, probably about lunch, because I just said that word. But apart from that, your memory is imperfect. It's incomplete. And at times, it's wildly inaccurate. A couple of years ago, Anna and I were leaving a restaurant. This was before we had children and weren't allowed to go to restaurants, apparently. As we were walking out, then we saw a pizza delivery guy on a scooter get knocked over. And so we figured, by another vehicle. So we thought, oh, we'll wait and give a witness statement to the police. And they arrived, and he said, he described what happened. And I said, yeah, you know, the, the white van was coming over and pulled over, and he just drove into the side of him and fell over. So it was, it was an accident, but he could have been paying more attention to the road, the guy driving the van. And the policeman said, there was no white van in that accident. I said, no, 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 there was. I saw it. And he said, no, you didn't. There was no white van. It was a green, little green car. We've got a whole bunch of witnesses. We've got the car, the driver who's admitted it. I could have sworn. And he said, don't worry, it happens all the time. You saw a van at the same time and your memory, 
you transposed it across that vehicle. The human memory is, is absolutely ridiculous. It, it changes over time. It changes based on your worldview. It gets influenced by the questions that people ask. So if, if, some, if after this, then somebody said, how angry did Sam sound when he preached? You'd probably go, didn't sound particularly angry. But then next week, if you said, what was Sam like? You'd probably say, oh, I remember him sounding a little bit angry because of somebody influencing the way that your mind works. This is true. And obviously, the, our, our version of the past is completely wrong. We can't rely on it. And our version of the future, we know we can't predict the future. We can predict various things about it. Tomorrow morning, I'm hoping to get the 7.39 train, but I can't tell you what time it's going to arrive. It could arrive at any time. It could be before or after. I can't predict anything about the future. I don't know it. But the way that God perceives reality, Wayne Grudem, in his book Systematic Theology, which you should all go and buy and get a copy because it's very good, in his a little bit about God being eternal, he says that God is the one whose existence is characterized by eternal presentness. That's why his name is I Am. In other words, every point in time is now to God. So when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, it wasn't just using that word to say, claim to be God. It was to say, before Abraham was, in the past, I am now. But if you were a time-bound person, then you would have to say, I was. But for Jesus, that's not what it's like. He is there. Now, this reveals something about what God is able to know about us. If he is present at every point in time, then he is able to perceive existence perfectly regardless of when it happens. So if something happened in the past, he knows it in as detailed a way as we could sit here and look at absolutely everything and perceive everything and listen very carefully. God is able to perceive it at least as well as that. I mean, he's God, so he could do it better. And into the future, he is in the future now. Because he is, that's who he is. He's not in time. He doesn't pass through it. He's somehow outside of it and is eternally everywhere. Every when. Does that make sense? Isaiah 46 and verse 10. I knew this one off by heart, but I've forgotten it. Isaiah 46 verse 10. Oh, yes, of course. Isaiah 46 verse 10 is that God says that he declares the end from the beginning. So, at the beginning of things, he already knew how it was going to end. In Psalm 139, verse 4, then, he said, then David is writing this psalm to God. I'm sure we know one Psalm 139, uh, lots of us. Before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. It's not just things that he knows. He knows details, individual words. And even Psalm 44, verse 21 says that he knows the secrets of our hearts. So even things that are not perceived by us, he's able to perceive them at every point in time, in every place. As a Christian, this is very encouraging. Because it means that when God offers us forgiveness for our sin, it isn't just the sins that he has seen, it's every sin. Because he can see even the secrets of our hearts. So no matter what kind of a past you've had, no matter what you have done, God's offer to you is complete and perfect and sure. Because he knows exactly where you've been. He knows he can forgive your sin because none of it's secret to him. But even better than that, he can see into our future. He can see things we have not yet done. If you think about the worst thing that you could ever do, and then add a little bit because you never know who you'll turn into, God offers you forgiveness right now, even knowing that you're going to do that thing. 
I think that the good news that we often preach of Jesus Christ is too small. Because we say, you were born with a sinful nature. You have sinned throughout your life, but Jesus forgives you for it. So repent and now live a new life because Jesus is a free gift of grace. That's true. But I think it gets better when you're able to say, God offers you that gift of grace knowing not only just that you will fall, but knowing exactly how and when you'll fall and still offers it to you. That's quite amazing. What it means is that we can never impress God. 1 Samuel 2 verse 3 says, Speak no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge. He knows what you're going to do. You can't impress God. You can't come and say, oh, hey, look what all these things that I've done. And he goes, oh, I'm so surprised at how great you've been. That can never happen. He knows exactly what we're going to do. It also means we can never let God down. And I mean that in terms of what he expects that we will do. We do let God down in terms of what he expects we should do. That's called sin. But in terms of what he expects that we will do, he knows what we will do. So no matter what sin you commit, God never sits there going, oh, Sam, not again. Because he knew you were going to do it. And he still offers you forgiveness for it. So we beat ourselves up, we commit a sin, and then end up you know, walking around miserable and getting angry with people. There's no point. God has already forgiven us. He did it at the cross. That's why in Romans 5 verse 8, we're told, when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't just conceptually this idea of sin. It was very specifically, I know exactly what you are going to do, and I've dealt with it completely. Now, just hold this idea that God knows everything, and let's just go back to Genesis 1 verse 1, God created. If God knows every detail of every moment in the future, and he created, and if you read the rest of Genesis, it's clear he's able to manipulate creation. He creates light and trees and obviously man. Then that means that when he was creating, he knew exactly how it would turn out, and he didn't change it. If you think about it, every single event in the whole of history is either actively initiated by God or it is actively allowed by God. He knows what's going to happen and he either is the one who has started it. He can uh, intervene now. You know, he answers prayer. He creates miracles. But or something is going to happen and he knows it's going to happen but doesn't do anything to stop it. 200 girls abducted in Nigeria. We think this is a terrible thing. I don't think God actively initiated that but I know he actively allowed it. He must have, because otherwise he's either not powerful or he's not good. And I know he's both of those things. Now, this is very difficult for us to understand, but five minutes ago when we said it was very difficult to understand God's eternity, that increased our awe of him. But now when we look at the way that things playing out in our circumstances and we don't understand it, then suddenly it creates doubt. It shouldn't. The fact that something is happening that we don't understand, but that God is involved, ought to make us go, God, you must be greater than I can possibly imagine. There must be something better going on here. And there's an easy throwaway Bible verse, Romans 8:28, that I'm sure many of us know, that says that all things work together for the good of those who love God and live according to his commandments. But that's a little bit too easy, and it's not that helpful if you're going through a hard time right now, is it? 
fact that we don't understand it doesn't mean that we should lose our faith in God, though. And the best example of this is when you look at Easter Saturday, surely. On Easter Saturday, the 11 disciples who remained would have gathered together because they had done every day for the last three years and men are creatures of habit. They were all around my age, so I can kind of imagine the sort of people that they were. But every day they'd gathered for the last three years, there'd been 13 of them. Because the day before, two of their number had died. Jesus was crucified, and Jesus committed suicide. Now, I'm still relatively young, or think myself that way, so I don't know that many people who have died. But I do know a couple. And I know that dealing with death is the hardest thing. There's nothing bigger. Death is difficult. When I was 17 years old, then a friend of mine committed suicide. And let me tell you, that is harder than just dealing with death of natural causes. Rick and Kay Warren spoke about it very powerfully. You can go and download those sermons and watch them back. But I can't imagine what it must be like to have to deal with the suicide of a close friend who had betrayed another friend to death. I just can't imagine it. Those 11 men would have simply gathered together and they would have just sat in silence. And surely, they would have questioned God. They had been with Jesus for three years. They'd seen him performing these wonderful miracles, healing people, feeding 5,000 from a packed lunch, raising the dead. Three of them had seen the transfiguration. There had been no doubt in their mind that Jesus is who he's claimed to be. But surely they would have said, God, what are you doing? You just, you let it happen. Did you not know? Were you powerless to stop it? One thing I don't think that they would have been doing would have been jumping around, dancing and clapping, singing, oh, happy day. But when we think of that day, then we do. Why? We're able to see it from outside their time. They're going through it, but we're able to perceive it from outside. And we can almost go, I appreciate that you're going through a tough time, but you don't know how great news this is. Yes, Jesus died. But tomorrow, he's going to rise again. And he's going to bring you with him because you've got faith in him. And this is the greatest news in the whole of history. There's nothing greater. It must have been the toughest day in the whole of history for them. But actually, because we can perceive it from outside of time, we know that it's, it's good news. Jesus came so that he could die. That's why he came. I know that there are people going through tough circumstances here this morning. And I know it's not easy for me just to be able to wipe it away and say, oh, God knows better and you'll be all right. But I do know that God is great. 
He can see everything. He sees into the secrets of your heart. And he's in complete control over the whole thing. And he is a good God who loves his children. See, God is so powerful that we ought to submit to him as a servant submits to a master. It's our privilege to do that. But God goes a step further and adopts us in so that we can relate to him as a child relates to a father. That's called grace. We all know, I'm sure, John chapter 3, verse 16, that explains that this eternal God entered time and became time-bound. That's humility. The unchanging one, Hebrews 13.8, says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But in Luke 2, verses 40 and 52, we're told that Jesus grew. He grew in terms of his body, he grew in years and in stature, but he grew in wisdom. He grew in favor with God and man. I can't understand how the unchanging one can grow. But the Bible says it's true. I don't understand it. God's great. The eternal God would enter time and become time-bound. He'd submit to his own creation of time. He'd stretch his arms out wide on the cross for us, saying, eternity is a very, very long time, and I don't want to have to live through it without you. So believe. And he does that so that us who are captured by time, who have been created inside of it, are able to inherit eternity. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, will not receive what those who are subject to time do, but will have eternal life. But, what are we doing? We just use the word eternal. And right at the beginning, then, we ask the question, what does eternal mean? Does it mean that we will keep growing older and older until forever? Or does it mean that actually we will leave time ourselves? The Bible's answer is very interesting. This is John chapter 17. If you want a chapter to just dwell on for several days, I would go for this one. Sorry, it's not chapter 17, it's chapter 16. No, it isn't. It is John chapter 17, but I was looking at Luke. (laughs) This is a prayer that Jesus prays over his disciples and over us. Um, And it starts in a uh, very interesting way. Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. Listen in. That anyone can live forever. No. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's not to do with time at all. When Jesus talks about eternal life, what it's about is knowing God. Because God is outside of time. Now, I do believe we live forever. 
Revelation 22 says we will reign with him forever and ever, which if you look at the ancient Greek, it's the longest you can possibly have of time. Forever is until the end of time, and ever is you know, forever and a day sort of thing. But this word know, we are to know God. That's what eternal life is. Uh, is a very interesting word. It's the ancient Greek word ginosko. It's used in a number of occasions through the Bible. It's a very, very intimate uh, sense of knowing. It's not like you know a fact or that you know an acquaintance. It's more like the knowledge that you would have in a very, very close relationship like a husband and wife. To the point that if you were a Jew in the first century, then the word ginosko was used to describe sex. I'm not going to be smutty about this, but you know Bible verses that say, and he knew his wife and she bore him a son. It's not that he knew her like he knew a phone number. He, you know, that's what it means. Now, Jesus, I don't think he's being smutty about this. I don't think we're going to have sex with God, although, I mean, you could debate spiritually, you know, we're going to be united with him. So, you know, give that one a go. And you haven't got community groups for a while, have you? Just dwell over it for the next 12 weeks, and then we'll come and discuss it. But he says, this is that you may know. This is an intimate knowledge, a close relationship, a friendship. God is so great and eternal that we should be submitting to him as master, and that's a privilege. But he makes it closer and forgives us and welcomes us into his family as a child as to a father. And then he goes a step further, and he welcomes us in as friends. Jesus keeps on praying. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is linked to eternity. And if you go back to John 16, then you catch a glimpse of where Jesus is going with it and why we're able to know God so well. In verse 5. Shall I go there? Oh, let's go for a little bit earlier. Um, so this is verse 4, halfway through. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I, goes, if, but if I go, I will send him to you. And then later in verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth so that we can know. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So this is to do with time as well. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The answer to how we can experience eternal life is by the Spirit. Eternity is something that we can't possibly comprehend. It exists outside of time, and God inhabits it. He's so much greater than we can possibly imagine. But in his humility, he doesn't lord that over us. He comes into time. He submits to his own creation so that he could die. Meaning that if we have faith in him, then the end result of us being in time is dealt with. And as he has risen to new life, we will rise with him by faith in Christ. And there's this question that Christians dwell over, which is, 
Why did Jesus then not just stick around? He could have gone, become a traveling preacher. He would have been very successful. Everyone would have become a Christian. It would have been good news anyway. But Jesus says, it's to your advantage that I go. Because when the Spirit comes, then you will know the Father. You can know about him when I teach you. But if you receive the Holy Spirit, then there will be fullness of joy because you will experience this relationship with the Father. Christianity is not a worldview, although it is. It isn't entirely a worldview. It's not a, a moral code. certainly isn't that. It's a relationship with God. And how we're able to kind of go through life being boring and pretend like we can keep a relationship with God going without ever meeting with him is disgusting. The Spirit has been given to us so that we can experience a relationship with God. Experience it. We can meet with him. So if the bank could come up, we're going to respond together by doing that. If you're a Christian this morning, I just want to invite you, please, when the bank comes in a minute, then we'll stand, and we're simply going to receive from God, receive knowledge of him, receive an experience of his relationship with us. Because he loves to be with us. He wants to be our friend. But if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, or you're just not sure that you've got a relationship with God, then that's fine. Because God offers you a free gift of grace, and you can respond to it this morning. In Joshua 24, 15, then Joshua issues a, uh, a bit of a challenge to the people who are with him. He says, If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord... Then choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, so gods out of your past, of your family, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, so the gods of this society and where we are right now. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Because that's where there's joy. There's joy in a relationship with God. And this morning, if you're not a Christian and you want to experience that, all you need to do is ask. He knows. He sees the secrets of your heart. He will pour out his spirit generously on us this morning because he's a loving father and he wants to be a good friend to us. So could we just stand together? We're simply going to ask the spirit to fall on us and that our knowledge of God would grow. Why don't just wherever we are, why don't you start speaking out or singing out maybe, just begging God, reveal more of yourself to me. Fall upon us, Holy Spirit. If you feel a little bit uncomfortable in doing it in here, then that's okay. Feel uncomfortable, but do it anyway, because God is greater. We might not understand it, but that's okay, because God is greater. He loves us, he's for us, he wants to be our friend. Just start speaking out to him. Oh God, would you reveal yourself to me? I want to experience this relationship with you. I want your spirit to come upon me in a new way more generously than he ever has done before. We want to know you better. Oh, Lord. We worship you. You are so much greater than we could ever know. Oh, God.
just wherever you are, why don't you just reach out to the person in front of you and just lay a hand on them and just ask the Spirit to fall on them powerfully. The Bible says believe in the laying on of hands, so ask the Spirit to fall on the person in front of you. If you feel moved to, then it's okay to have a little bit of fun. Give them a little bit of a push. There's joy in His presence. He loves us.